0: Hey, .NET ROCKS fans, Richard and I are going to be at the Dev Intersection Conference at the Marriott Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida, April 13th through 16th. Come see your favorite speakers Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Papa, Billy Hollis, Brian Noyes, Dan Wallin, Todd Anglin, Tim Huckabee, Michelle Bustamante, Miguel Castro, Duval Lowy, Kathleen Dollard, and many more. Go to devintersection.com to register now. You'll save 200 bucks if you register on or before February 24th, $100 if you register between February 25th and March 31st, and you can save an additional 50 bucks by specifying .NET Rocks is how you heard about the conference. More details at devintersection.com. We'll see you in April. Rocks episode 945 with guest Michelle Larubustamante. Recorded live Wednesday,
1: January 22nd, 2014. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at Telerik.com. And by Franklins.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePAK.com And now, here are Carl and Richard.
0: Hey Seattle, it's
1: .NET Rocks. Woo! yeah awesome we've had an interesting drive this week because we started in san francisco on monday they weren't very happy there
0: yeah no they were dour
1: yeah then we went to denver yesterday
0: crazy they were all stoned
1: (laughs) (laughs) all of them they were pretty excited about the super bowl yeah and now it's uh now it's seattle i
0: feel the spirit of Jimi hendrix is in the house do you guys feel that because uh, we're, we're at the experience music project and uh yeah speaking of stoned it's like <laughs> i'm getting high just walking around this place just seeing all the you know psychedelic stuff but it's a crazy place. I, Yeah, i
1: can't help but look at the structure of the building and think about the fits it must have given the engineers yeah because there's not a straight line in this whole building yep
0: not very cool very cool and a great venue great staff everybody's been awesome Uh, James Montemagno just did an awesome thing uh, with Xamarin, and it's been a great road trip. What can I say? Enough about that. Roll the music for a segment we call Better Know a Framework. All right, buddy, what do you got? What do I got? Well, uh, I don't usually talk about Windows 8 or 8.1 on .NET Rocks. We have another show show for that, The tablet show. But there's just some news coming out that we can't really ignore. And you know, Paul Thrott sort of leaked uh, some information about the next version of Windows, Windows 9. Yeah, let's call it rumor. All right. It's rumor. Okay. But there have been some confirm, there has been a little confirmation now about how the next, this version, this update that's coming out this year of Windows 8.1 is going to make Windows 8 Metro apps, and I can say Metro because I don't work for Microsoft, mm-hmm. um, and desktop apps a little closer together. A little friendlier. There are, des- there are pictures that have been leaked of, on the taskbar, uh, the Windows Store app. So, Metro apps pinned to the desktop taskbar. Oh, interesting. And also, it's been, uh, I don't know if it's been proven, I don't know how the proof is, I haven't seen it, but... The close button in a Metro app. So now you can get rid of a Metro app.
1: You don't just swipe away from it. Yeah? You like that, huh? uh, All right. That's interesting. There you go.
0: All right. so Do you have uh, a link for me? Yeah, I do. Tinyurl.com slash new win 81 update because every permutation of win 81 update has already been taken. So new win 81 update and you can see uh, the article about that and Paul Thorott and Mary Joe Foley have been following this story about you know the next version of Windows and what it's sure I mean this, this, gonna this look is like. going to affect all of us but here's the and we usually talk about this on the tablet show but here's the the truth is that you know a lot of the, the people that were behind the push for Windows 8 you know that that start screen the whole um you know, WinJS and all of that stuff. A lot of those people have moved on.
1: Yeah, they, they, it seems like the teams are different. And certainly yeah. the dynamics seems to be different. So it's going to be interesting to see what it looks like it's from a product really, perspective. It's
0: really going to be interesting to see what happens. So we don't know. We, we, we're, we're not insiders that much. I don't even think people that work at Microsoft know what's going on. So, uh, But but anyway, there has stuff that's rumored and stuff that's leaked in pictures and things. And you sure. can see them there. Well, you can check the links on the show notes and, yep. uh, and take a look at what we've learned so far. There you go.
1: Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us today? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I grabbed a comment off of show 874 and that is the show we did with Ms. Bustamante a little while back. That was back in May of 2013 where we talked about her experiences with uh, Snapboard and the whole… Being in a startup and biz spark and that whole cultural piece and the, and the sort of diversification of skills, I thought was a real, a big part of that conversation. Cause this comment comes from Jomet uh, Vigalia, who says, and I hope I pronounced your name correctly, sir. Uh, yet another great show, guys. Thanks to Michelle for pointing out the book, The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. I bought this book, and I must say, for a techie like me, it is definitely an excellent primer into the world of marketing. In the last two years, I have done consulting for two different startups, and the whole experience has been phenomenal. It truly helped me understand various important aspects of the software development business other than writing code. Yeah. I am fascinated by the entrepreneurial spirit, and I aspire to learn more. Awesome. And thought so that was a great part that came out of that show, is I think as developers, we're really hung up on it. You know, if I just build this better mousetrap, they will come. Right. And we've learned it doesn't always work that way. Yeah, coding and marketing, two different skills. Yep. Yeah, and they need both. Both are valuable.
2: People actually need to need what you're building.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And or it,
2: want it badly.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, and you actually have to run a com- company properly and you have to sell properly. And like all of those pieces are part of making a business successful.
2: And the code has to work.
1: And oddly enough, if the product doesn't work, none of that matters. Mm. Funny. Funny. So, Jummet, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, Windows 8, Android, and iOS. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app? Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com.
0: So, let me officially introduce Michelle LaRue Bustamante. She is managing partner at Soliance. That's S-O-L-L-I-A-N-C-E.net. Co-founder of Snapboard, snapboard Snapboard.com, and is recognized as a Microsoft regional director and an MVP. Michelle is a thought leader with over 20 years specializing in building scalable and secure end-to-end system design, identity, and access management, and cloud computing technologies for companies of all sizes. Michelle shares her experiences through presentations and keynotes all over the world, and has been publishing regularly in technology journals. She wrote the best-selling book, Learning WCF. Woo. Big frickin' book. <laughs> O'Reilly, 2007. <laughs> Visit her blog at michellebusta.com. That's M-I-C-H-E-L-E-B-U-S-T-A dot com. And on Twitter, at Michelle Busta. Please, a round of applause for Michelle Bustamante.
2: Did you just read a bio?
0: <laughs> I did. You I know, did. usually it's Michelle. But you know yeah. we're in oh. a we're in a crowd. We took a poll a little bit earlier and uh, not a lot of people have heard the show before, so oh, I figured cool. I would introduce you. Well, that um, was
2: interesting to listen to.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so the last time we talked, we've you've been on the show so many times and the last time we talked as the caller, as the writer was uh commenting there. We talked about Snapboard, which is your startup company, uh-huh. and you talked about how awesome it is that you have all the services that Microsoft gives you in the cloud and Azure for startups uh-huh. and how it's virtually free and painless to get started and, uh, and all the things you have to worry about. Do you find that you have to wear both the operations hat and the developer hat when you're using Azure? Or because you're a one stop shop, or do you actually work with somebody to do the Azure IT stuff and you do the dev stuff? Or can you, do you find that you're doing both?
2: I think you have to do both. Um, Somebody has to do, you know, the IT side of it. And usually that ends up being a developer in the business if it's a small business because you don't have enough resources to hire a dedicated IT person. And I guess maybe more importantly, do you have to hire a dedicated IT person if, you know, you're better off spending that money or securing those resources that can actually help build the code when IT is only this portion in the beginning? Yeah. When you're launching a startup or a new product or a minimum viable product that you're testing out, yeah. um, you need it to stay up and be live and 24 seven and you need to know when things go wrong, but it's, it's not that hard to get that to that point, you know, where a single person could be monitoring that every day and also writing code and being productive, right?
0: Do you find that the tools that Azure gives you to do that IT stuff are easier than the tools that we've had on the Windows side in the past? I mean, they're certainly cheaper, but uh, are they easier to use and understand for coming from a developer's point of view?
2: Well, I mean, it's completely different. Right. Because, you know, if you go to a traditional environment where you're deploying and putting together the VM, setting it up, uh, reinstalling the OS or updating the OS, keeping it secure and locked down. You, you have to put a lot of time into that, right? And that also implies that when you do those updates, you have to redeploy the code and that requires a process and people and team and, and possibly getting continuous build working properly. So you know exactly what's getting deployed and uh, predictable. So there's a lot of time managing those things. And anytime you're putting time keeping track of stuff, you're not putting time into something else that could be more productive. So in my personal experience, which has been, you know, really a couple of different things, right? Companies, but also customers that we consult for and have put them into the cloud and provided different processes for them that work better for them, um, that you don't really, it's not that hard to yeah. build and deploy predictably from even your development environment, if you set up a good process with TFS, for example, you know, um, we've done a lot of really interesting things there, actually.
1: And when you say process, are we really mm-hmm. talking about documentation or is it automation?
2: No, it, it, it can be automation, but even that, I think, is a stretch for small businesses where maybe you don't have somebody dedicated to sit there and learn how to build, how to do continuous builds and automate deployment. Mm-hmm. So that's an expertise in itself, isn't it? So if you don't have somebody you can dedicate to that, then why not just have a process that you can work with in your dev environment? I can build in VS. I can have a version in TFS that is my production version. This is always what represents what's live in the code, and nobody touches that, and nobody deploys that except for the designated people. And then you've got a copy of that that is a branch that you then merge in specific changes as you have verified that they are okay, and then you push that live from the production branch only. So there's lots of development going on over here, and you know recently, and I can't take full credit for this because uh, my colleague uh, Zoyner and I you know work together on lots of our customers, and he came up with this great process where controlling some of the outsource work. You know, everybody has to check in change sets that mean something together, which makes sense, right? But you have to actually tell people to do that or Mm -hmm. they won't. So a check-in is tied to a feature and that feature should be able to be deployed in an isolated way or collectively with three change sets but you could hand pick the change sets that have to go live now. So if I'm going to fix something related to login and then I'm also fixing some things related to blob storage and streaming or whatever, they're completely isolated files so I can put them in a separate change set so that we can safely merge just the login fix and not the other stuff, right? And so if you keep this branch ongoing that is you know, many developers checking in things and then hand pick the stuff to push over, then you always know exactly what's in production and you always know that if you get latest there, do a check in, verify nothing is different besides what you just merged, and then push that, it becomes extremely reliable and safe. And I, I I think that works for a lot of small businesses, people that don't have dedicated IT that can do continuous build and set up those automated processes. So personally.
0: we call that no ops then? Because you and Soyner are Well,
2: I'm just giving Zoiner as an example, right? Like, Zoiner is is my partner, and he... But I'm just saying, your
0: small team is doing everything, so you don't have dedicated ops guys... You're, you're right. doing everything all or, yourself. Or me
2: or the customers we're doing work for, which are, are several different ones, that we've helped them come up with processes. And some of them were very engaged in ongoing development. Some of them were just helping them set up process right. and then walking away uh, after helping them build a piece that they needed. So the added value is, you know, let's help you make sure you're safe with your deployment process. So mm. um, so for example, I brought up Zoiner because he really came up with that process that helped with managing a lot of outsourced different developing teams, you know, and and it I, I really love that process, it works great. So right. I pulled that into Snapboard, you know, because before that, I had a different way of branching. There are lots of different ways you can approach, you know, branching sure. and knowing what's in production, but that's like the number one problem, right? Where's my code that's actually live right now? So if I have to fix something fast, I can do that and push. And it's always ready to go, you know, and somebody's got that. So you've
1: never broken the production branch. You're always tinkering somewhere else with new features. Right. The production branch, that package.
2: That package is there, ready to go. And you have to really know where it is. And whoever can push, maybe there's two of you, you know, in the company, has it in a separate folder somewhere ready to go so that on a moment's notice, literally, if something is wrong, you can get in there, fix it, push you know?
1: uh, so you've got it. You've got your production package. Yeah. It lives in and you run that in Azure. That's yeah. your gold version, right? Now you've got a bunch of branches for development going on for various features. When those guys actually go to to run it, are they still pushing up to Azure just on a different URL so they can see? So how it we works?
2: usually have uh, there's production, of course, yep. and then there's usually a staging that you can push to production with a swap. That's Mm. something we should talk about. Sure. And then we've got a dev branch which is, you know, where if you have new stuff you just constantly push so if there's five different teams they can all check in, and then there's maybe one or two people that update dev and keep that going. And you have to do that, because if you're doing single sign-on, it's a pain for a bunch of people to deploy different Azure instances and get set up so that the STS trusts you, which is another thing. that's why I asked that question.
1: It's like, how do these devs stay fast and build stuff that you know is actually going to work in Azure? I would presume you keep deploying to Azure, but then how do you manage all those different branches deploying into different places? Without stepping on each other. Well,
2: so you said something interesting there. All these different branches. Right. How many branches does one right. really need? That's where it If gets... you've got that production branch, yeah. which is the golden, we've blessed this code, push it over, and now that's our new code that we push up to prod, yep. hopefully to a staging area with a swap in place, right? So that you can go back fast if you mess that up. And then you've got all the other stuff. Right. So really, everybody else should be able to work on all the other stuff unless there's a special project, what I would call, mm-hmm. right? So uh, we're going to re-architect some of the link... Uh, you know, uh, URL pass for Snapboard. Okay. So that is like a special project that might take a little longer than some of the ongoing development work that's being done for current customers. Yeah. So we pull that over to a separate branch, but it still has to be something that can merge back to production. Yeah, so right. you no longer still it's want to branch it. The harder
0: it. it is to check in, yeah.
2: Well, it, and it, yeah, exactly. I mean, it can't be checked out. It has to be, you know, Branched, shelved or yeah, or, yeah. or or constantly checked in so that we have the code. Yep. Um, but, you know, so I would call that a special project branch, um, which mm. you don't really usually have a lot of those going on. Maybe, I, I would think maybe one, aside from the main active development branch, you okay. know?
1: But then uh, you do have a place in Azure that that main development branch compiles to so that they yes. can execute it.
2: And, and so you can run it locally, and that's right. another... Depends on if you're doing cloud services or if you're just doing websites yeah. uh, or a VM, which means you can just run like you normally would with IS locally, yeah. uh, which is another discussion point because mm. you've got to make some choices there too. But um, presumably you could test locally, check in, and then there's this ongoing, could be continuous build if you have somebody set that up, or it could be you know just once a day or when there's something critical we want to get up into the cloud for other people to check it out, we push to dev. Right, so Dev is a place in the cloud where the ongoing work done by people that is checked in goes. Yeah, right, and if somebody checks in something that breaks other stuff, that's going to go up there. So obviously, one has to be careful what you're checking in, and and it's okay in the sense that it's Dev, yeah, right? It's not so we want to see what's not working, but if you're doing demos off that, well, that raises another issue. Sometimes you need a demo area, right? Right, sure. So this is the you know. Blessed dev code, and we're not going to, you know, update that Azure location <laughs> right. every time people check in. So there's this ongoing. This is the latest and greatest. This is the stuff we recently yeah. blessed that the company can use for demos. Yeah, and, it's like a
1: beta site, right? Beta. Uh, yeah. And then I've, here's I've the production now. Right.
2: Yeah. And, exactly.
1: I, and I think it's important to keep all all of these different things s- separate and be aware that yeah. they all exist, right? Yeah. And I've run into companies where they had behaviors like. Uh, every feature represented a branch. And so, Mm. yeah, it got hairy. Ouch, yeah. you know and, but they wanted to keep those guys that that was three guys working on a on a feature set and there were three other guys working on a different feature set right. and they did not want to have to talk to each other while they were doing the That's their films. called
2: the code is not isolated enough, yeah. though, right? Cuz if those things were broken into assemblies that had sort of that concept of features They should have anything to do with
1: each other. Mm. They
2: sh- at least the files shouldn't, right? I mean w- the architecture of the files should not be touching each other technically speaking. But the right? other
1: whammy I've run into yeah. is we were doing our dev locally and then when you actually push it up to Azure, you ran into things like the authentication model wasn't working correctly. The AD, ADFS system had a problem for doing authentication back to the main system, and it worked great in-house. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you put it to Azure, all bunch of this code you've written didn't so work. So that's right. where your staging well,
0: area comes in, right? Yeah. Exactly. So you go from dev to staging, you run it through all the tests and and make sure it's going to work. In and Azure. let it
2: age sometimes, right? Yeah. You know, like it's sometimes, I mean, you know, this is probably obvious, but I think sometimes we all need a smack in the face to remember yeah. <laughs> that, uh, you know, your production when you are actually live really should not get updated yeah. until you're... Let's call it a hundred percent sure <laughs> as much as you can and and that's hard to to be unless you do a lot of little updates, which is another sort of learning that mm-hmm. you know has gone on at least for for me over the past year and a half, and uh you know. Especially when you have like some number of customers hitting the site, like thousands and thousands, 10,000, 40,000, you don't want to be updating that Mm. with like big changes. You want to do lots of little changes frequently so that you can sniff those out. Uh, Because you need to do like full regression otherwise, right? And full regression doesn't mean just in staging to then production. It means after you push production, you got to smoke test that too with a significant amount if it's a big product, a significant amount of touch points to make sure that nothing's broken based on what was deployed. So the less you deploy in change, the the, the better you are equipped to know where should I smoke test
0: you to know it's okay. You mentioned swapping uh, between yeah. production and uh, the staging. So when you, when you, when you go from stage to production, you actually move production back to staging. Is that what you're saying?
2: Right. So, so I started with Azure way back with cloud services. So if you're familiar, there's, you know, three models, right? There's the VM, which is your classic, I build a machine or, or very AWS
1: model, typical, right? Yeah.
2: And then you've got, so it's basically IaaS. It's not managed, uh, the same way. It's not pass. So we've got cloud services, which is where it started. So when Azure came out with cloud services, that was what I always used. And one of my favorite features has always been to this day, the swap feature, because you've got these two VMs and they are isolated. So you're, you know, paying for those slots. Oh, well. Um, and you've got a production one and you've got your staging slot always. So whenever you up deploy something new, you can, you know, push it to staging, maybe hit it without the fancy URL, right, the domain, yep. and then do the swap and then hit it again. But if something went wrong, you can swap back, which is lovely. Oh, yeah. Um, that also has its side effects, meaning configuration settings and stuff. Because, like, for example, if staging and production is reading from a queue and it's the same queue guess what's going to happen? Mm. Not that I ever found that out the hard way. <laughs> so, you know, like emails getting processed by one or the other. And sometimes that actually works out okay because they do the same code anyway. But, you know, I regress. But also
1: stuff like man- making sure you manage state properly. Right. So this is a live site and you swap it. Right. The guy who's mid-transaction in that swap, because he survived, as his state well, carry Well, the
2: across. way that... So that's... Partially what's handled by swap, right? Because what they have is the VM is running and you've got these IP addresses behind the load balancer. And then what they do is they essentially switch the pointer at the other location. But they do it in a way if you've got redundancy. So this is where having multiple instances helps, right? So if I deploy a single VM for production and I don't have a redundant VM, then I'm in trouble because it's going to at some point, you know... Spin from here to here and maybe not safely it'll actually have to spin down after the threads complete Mm -hmm. in iis and then switch over here so there could there there may not be a hiccup in pointing but it's not going to maybe finish properly processing whereas if you have the two then you know they can switch one and then the other you know i don't know like i guess i hope i'm describing that okay without a diagram um so so Coming back to what swap's doing for you though, it's, it's essentially letting you have that fallback. So mm. you want that magic button. Mm. And we didn't have that with websites until if you saw Scott Guthrie did a post this week. And we've been sort of waiting with bated breath because we got some customers that do websites and not cloud services, right. which is a whole nother discussion of why I am now okay with that. Whereas in the past I was being pulled away from cloud services, and I wasn't happy. And now yeah. I see the point, right? There's yeah. lots of good reasons to do websites instead, but mm-hmm. we're waiting for these features to catch up, you know? And so swap is a great feature, and it's still got some work to do because you're sharing a VM now. Now I deploy my website, and I have a staging and a production, but they're on the same VM, and they're behind, you know, mm. uh, basically a different uh, uh, IIS website, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's still using up resources on my VM to have the staging, as opposed to this is isolated on another VM. But it works in the sense that they still can do the swap for you and retain the IP address and the SSL pointer and all of those things. So you know, I mean, it's finally there, which is good. It's just there's some things you got to look out for there too with the resource usage.
1: Yeah, it sounds like something you need to practice a few times. More than yeah. In fact, it's a budget Yeah. Yeah. actually switching production around, doing swaps successfully, like it's, there's everything lots of little details. Everything has to
2: details. be and that is another thing that in the cloud, you know, it's nice that all these features that, that make management easier, but that really everything you do, even just turning on a monitor like New Relic to collect data on the performance of the system, you got to let that age in devel- development and hopefully with lots of people hitting it because you don't know the effect of that when you go to production.
1: Right, what the overhead is. If you is. have
2: a lot more people. So that's another thing to be ready to swap back on because what if that messes up? Like, everything you do, you don't actually know how it's going to react until you go live, right. especially because of the number of users that might be hitting the system. I mean, the, the it's hard to load test really, really thoroughly
1: with uh, the I'm, same
2: dynamic experience that comes from live, go live. I'm, you know? I'm
1: at the point now where like, I, just, I, I can't make load tests that are as weird as the humans that use my app. It's like, true. I'm really trying, but humans are weird.
2: No, it's it's almost impossible. So, so what a load test resolves, in my view, is the obvious failures, right? I mean, you you can do a load test even just on your own machine. I mean, back yeah. in the day when we used to have to spin up some sort of console app that hit ran some threads right. and did some stuff, and you could prove pretty fast when you were maxing out on a WCF service sure. with like you know I don't know two Or when know, you done users, something nasty, right?
1: right? You did some so, nasty coupling as soon yeah. as the number of instances rose rose above. Say one, right. you had problems. Right. I mean, you <laughs> find, you find, find the really low
2: hanging fruit problem yeah. super fast when you do those types of load tests. Right. The question I've never been able like to answer live.
1: reliably with load testing is, will we survive the weekend? <laughs> right. Like, that's the question everybody asks is, is a, is version one fast, version two faster than version one? Yeah. I could probably answer that with load testing or at least make it look like the an answer to that. But that, are we going to get through the weekend with the number of customers and so forth? Can't answer that.
2: No, you can't. The
1: trick is don't deploy on Friday.
2: Actually, I will argue that might not be always the good case. It 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 depends on the the, what
1: the high usage day is. The
2: usage days of the uh, one of our customers, their peak is Monday, so it's like never deploy on the weekend. Right. Right, because mm. you don't want to find everything out Monday morning. Yeah,
1: deploy so on deploy Wednesday, on so you have Thursday, a few days. or Friday
2: is better because it starts calming down, and then you have the weekend to see that all that went okay. But you actually have one work day to see that the lower volume is okay. That just sure. means you
0: have to go ahead. It and just come means in less on pissed Saturday. off
2: people. That's what you're looking it's for, trying, right? Just trying you to know?
0: minimize
1: the amount of hate I get.
2: It's really hard to 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 go. Okay, so here's another sort of just experience that I think is important, and that is. If you go live with a startup, you've got, like, no users.
1: Yeah. So and, and you're going to find
2: out really slowly when you have problems, and you're not going to really piss off a lot of people because, you know, so you might lose those first 10 people if they don't want to come back, but you're not with a 100,000 people hitting your site. When you've got already 100,000 users mm-hmm. or, or anywhere in great number, let's say 10,000 plus hitting the site actively, many, many concurrent users, 300 plus at a given moment, you you just simply can't expect to migrate to a new app or a new environment without pissing some people off. Something's yeah. going to go wrong. Like yeah. it's a guarantee so you got to be ready to fix the the problem fast in order and be responsive and be ready to deploy fixes and have that whole setup I'm talking about because you You're going to piss somebody off. Something's not going to be right. You're going to hit something that wasn't regression test properly, somehow wasn't found, and you just have to be ready for it, you know?
1: I'm incredibly anti-rollback. I always want to roll forward. Like you say, fix Fix. fast.
2: Fix fast. Don't
1: go back to the previous version. Right. Be quick to make the repair and roll roll forward. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Must be that happy time again.
0: That's right. It's time to swap a very intelligent discussion with a few moments of moronic ineptitude. Nice. What do you think? How will you do this? We're going to, that obviously, by not telling a good joke. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it didn't seem that bad, but okay. All right,
0: well. Uh, we're, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Nice. But before I tell you who it is, let me tell you that this episode's brought to you by Telerik Icinium, which lets you develop, test, and publish iOS and Android apps from a single code base using only HTML5 and JavaScript, all from within Visual Studio. And so what you can do is you can use their comprehensive backend as a service running in the cloud. It has integrated support for Kendo UI and jQuery mobile, as well as integrated testing and deployment capabilities. All this makes Icenium a robust end-to-end mobile app development platform for .NET developers. Telerik Icenium is available on a subscription basis and is now part of the Telerik DevCraft Ultimate Collection. Start a free 30 day trial of Icinium with support at Icinium.com DNR. That's iceniu dot DNR. And don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting rocks. Absolutely. So who's our winner, buddy? Today's winner is Paul O'Toole. Congratulations. Give it up, Paul. For Paul. Paul just won $2,000 worth of Telerik software. It's just about everything they do in one box, the DevCraft Complete Collection. We give one away on every show. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com and click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. You could win, too. Every December, we give away $5,000 in technology to one lucky member. We've done it for two years now. Yeah. Every show, we ask our guests, Michelle, if you had $5,000 right now to spend on technology, toys, gadgets, technology, development, whatever you like, what would you buy?
2: You know what? I'm ready for an Xbox One, believe it or not. Ooh. Wow. And that's not going to spend all 5000 We can get no. you 10 of them. So, we can well, get you really nice. A whole lot of mums. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Something yeah, to big, view that. On. Big stack of games, big yeah, screen for it. Yeah. I mean,
2: it. just that whole thing, uh, video surveillance cameras all over the house really? just for fun. I just kind of want it. Wow. I just think it's cool. Yeah.
1: That's I odd. don't know why. Okay. Yeah. But uh, I want to be
2: able to go away on a vacation and go, "Okay, is somebody feeding the cat or not?" Oh, you nice. know, like
1: put the camera on the cat.
2: <laughs> the cats, a <with> cat
1: can <laughs> That would be
2: awesome. <laughs> they done but that. it won't last. Did
1: you ever hear that? St- you ever hear that story? The oatmeal we were writing about a research piece. I think we talking about the University of Virginia, where they actually camered a bunch of cats uh-huh. and found out that like twenty percent of cats kill something
0: every day.
2: Well, I, mine I are that. indoor cats, so I'm wanting to know what those things are.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> the study also found out 100% of cats really don't like wearing cameras. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes. Yeah, Love a lot of this going on. Yeah. So the, good. the oatmeal is like not like a big the bell fan. Of, around
2: the neck, only not, <laughs> yeah, right? right? Yeah. yeah the
1: oatmeal is not a big fan of cats, so he's sort of explaining that most cats are homicidal maniacs, and
0: this data collected prove that but they're did. so cute homicidal maniacs yes they're all right, really well.
2: cute when they're you know really tiny like our new cat tiger that was we, we got this big and now she's this big and she bites and claws and yeah, you not know
0: cute anymore yeah. yeah
2: my son seriously goes to school like they're gonna send a note, note home yeah. soon he's five and he's got scratches all over his face all over his arms because he <laughs> Well, he squeezes her, yeah, and, you know, she doesn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a problem. There's kind of a so, feedback mechanism there. Yeah. At some
1: point, it's like, you got to let the cat I go. I keep
2: telling him she's not going to be your friend. But literally, he's covered his scratches, and I keep, you know, like, wondering when they're going to send the note home so and say, the, what are you doing to so your So the
0: Xbox One, you really like? You like the Kinect part of it? Yeah, like that the, whole, really the whole awesome. thing.
2: Yeah, the whole yeah. thing. I mean, you know, again, it's not $5,000 worth, but it's the thing I want next.
1: You can find a way awesome. to spend it. Yeah. For sure. Exactly. So you're gonna get JP playing video games? That's that's where we're headed?
2: No, I think we're good with just uh, learning tools. Okay. Yeah, I okay. don't want an addicted game-playing child. Ah, uh, he'd
1: be great at Halo.
2: He would. I'm scared.
0: <laughs> I'm really just scared. We'll never get out of the house again. Richard you know, Richard he's Richard.
2: already found La La Loopsie or whatever those cartoons are that we need to now turn off. So, you know. Well, yeah.
0: Teletubbies? What is that? A I, I don't La even know what that is
2: anymore. I think that was like our generation, isn't it? Like Teletubbies?
0: <sighs> no, that's really that's, that's It's sad long. that
2: I know the cartoons. I mean... I could list them right now, but then I'd when, be embarrassed. When my
0: daughter was seven, I was watching Yellow Submarine, and she mm. came in and stared at the screen, and she sat down next to me and said, what's this, Daddy? And I said, it's kind of like Teletubbies for grown-ups." Nice.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Paw Patrol. That's his favorite yeah. now. Yeah, Paw so. Patrol. That one's my favorite, Mama.
0: All right. <laughs> yeah. Let's jump back into DevOps in the cloud. No-ops, as we call it. What have been some of the biggest learning experiences? I mean, we've been talking about some of these, but some of the biggest learning experiences from having to run your own sort of startup company using using the tools, using Azure
2: well lessons I, learned yeah i mean i think some of them as you said we've talked about some of that already mm. i mean you know probably from the startup side it still start slow right try to come up with that minimum viable product that that piece of the the feature set that you can actually Get up there and try it out, you know? Um, and that doesn't have to be any more than a registration page sometimes. Yeah. It's, I mean, it sounds silly, but it's true. Like, will people actually register if they know what this product is going to do with a picture on a page? That's one way to do a, an MVP. And that's the, that's
1: the lean startup approach, right? It it's is. like, I'm not yeah. actually build the product, I'm going to build the vision of the product right. and a registration page. Right. And the validity of my model is on how many registrations I get.
2: It, it is. It's, it's, it's sort of a show of traction potential. Yeah. And, you know, of course, that's only the first step. The next step is something that works. Yeah. And that, again, a lot of people get stuck on, it's gotta have a login and this and that. And, you know, I, again, I've worked with a lot of really smart people that, that have other experiences that we've shared and and what I've learned from them is, is that don't even have a login page right like just throw a page up you register you get in and you let them play and you watch where they click and you put those heat map tools in you know that watch uh, kind of where they're looking on the screen the most and mm-hmm. where they're clicking and is your UI for that one page you know uh, inspiring them to do those things uh, if you watch with Google Analytics you can see if they stay in and click around or if they leave right away? How many average pages do they visit? Really, really easy too, right? that one little script and Google Analytics does an awful lot for free, like really for free. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's great. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so getting started, it's all about just getting something up there that works, but it doesn't have to be the fully functional product to know if that's viable. And that's startup, or that's, I'm a large business and I wanna try out if this new idea we have is going to fly, Uh, either with existing customers or with a new customer base, because it's a new idea completely, like a new tool or a new thing. Um, So that's kind of a, a, a thing that I learned because I was really stuck on, we gotta finish this in earlier startups that I worked on. And then when we did with Snapboard, we really just did a basic thing, and then I got my first customer, like, yeah. you know. I mean, really, on practically a prototype that just, it did function, you know? Yeah.
0: Um, did you yeah. hit any brick walls with Azure?
2: You know, I I didn't. I think the learnings on Azure have had to do a lot with uh, what are the features of websites versus cloud services, because I always went with cloud services, right. which literally... You can do all, pretty much everything you need to do on a cloud service, right? I mean, you can customize the VM. You can install registry settings and things like that. Um, so so if you have a tool like a DLL, like a P-Invoke DLL, let's say, that you need to run a registry license setting, which I encountered recently with one of the customers we have. And, you know, that you could do on a cloud service with a task, you just run the task, and it'll do the thing. Um, but when you go with the websites, you have no control over the VM at all. So, right. um, but you also,
1: that lowers your operating cost, too. You're not responsible for a bunch of things.
2: That's not exactly true. Really? No, because the real difference, in my view, between a website and a cloud service right. is, number one there's the fact that I can control more things on a cloud service. So I would opt into that because I know that I'm either migrating an existing product that may require, again, license keys, uh, special customizations of IIS, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, but you're
1: also responsible for right. patching and doing the updates to no. IIS. No. No? No.
2: Because mm. it's still pass. That's not the same as VM. Right. It will auto-update the OS. It will update all of those things automatically if you allow it right. or you can control when it does it but you can mm. do that so actually it takes that step away okay it's a nice little sweet spot between websites which is you know less control but it works yep
1: yeah as long and, as you're doing a standard right. website nothing too exotic yeah
2: but see that's changing and mm-hmm. this is the argument i've been having for about a year or so with my partners brian and and Zeiner, because initially i was cloud service girl Zoyner was total fan of websites because he had I've done a lot of work with Microsoft internally on some customers, you know, before it was even really fully baked mm-hmm. and, and knew what was coming more than I did. Right. So we would talk about, and then Brian said, I'm in the middle. I'll, I'll do the research because I'm neutral. So, cause I had preference, Zoiner had preference. Right. So we did this whole Duke it out thing at the MVP summit a year ago or so, uh, where, I I mean, I was like convinced we got to go with cloud services to most of the customers because we don't know what we're going to run into. But there was this long list of, oh, well, SSL's coming and fixed IPs are coming and this and that and the other thing. Okay, fine, let's do websites. And the truth is, as we've needed stuff, websites has come up with the features that we needed. So, you know, he was right. And now I love websites because, in fact, it turns out, it's much easier, of course, locally, right? Because with cloud services, the one downside is that you're running in the emulator and it's just slow. I, right. don't, I don't like that part mm-hmm. at all.
1: And they've never made a local version of cloud services. There's never been a Windows Server cloud services package.
2: Yeah, it, it, well, because it's the emulator, right. and it's just slow.
1: Emulators are always going to be slow. It's right?
2: always going to be slow. So, so I wish that was the case. Yeah. that would be great because then everything would just run. And and mm. so so with websites, you just run the way you would in Visual Studio IIS as usual, but you have to be aware of I push it out there, something might not work. Right. Unless you really, really know. So, in fact, with a rather large migration, one one that we worked on, the only thing we really ran into was that one license file that I, I mentioned specifically for that reason. It's, you know, you run into these DLLs, like the only way to use it is if you run a reg setting. Yep. So I had to push that into you know a worker role to queue up the jobs that did that thing. Now right. the the good thing about that was it actually was a better architecture, so I didn't feel like slimy making that choice. You didn't make an but ugly design to make I, I that work. I actually didn't, but yeah. I was worried at first, and then I realized, no, what you know what we should be doing that anyway because it's actually an offline job. It's going to turn out some documents, and right? Stuff, and it'll so. scale
1: independently. But
2: but that could have been a bad thing. Yeah. It just didn't turn out to be a bad thing. Yeah.
1: So, so, this was not a grand plan on
0: your part. It, it wasn't part of out. the plan initially, okay.
2: exactly, but it kind of came about. So, yeah, little things like that might come up, but otherwise, it's really good.
0: Do you want to take some questions from the audience? Does anybody have a question for Michelle? Anyone at all? Yeah, sir. Yes,
2: sir. I have a question. How uh, trust, uh, uh, trustful are you with uh, storing data?
0: How trustful oh. are you with storing data in Azure? So
2: there's a couple types of data, right? You've got your storage, blobs, content, and or table storage if you're using that, and or, you Azure. know, SQL Azure. Or, I mean, what if you're using ClearDB? I have some customers is using ClearDB. Is your Clear trust level
0: the same for all of so them? So
2: I, I, I believe it is. I mm. mean, the thing that you must do, though, is back up. So I don't. Trust Azure to keep all of my Snapboard content or other customers that have really, really important blob data content. Just because it's triple replicated, it's not even about them keeping it safe. It's about users that delete stuff that you, you know, they may not have meant to. You need a rollback plan. You know, you got to find something that they blew up, or let's say some new code mangles. New content or old content, yeah. you got to have a backup. So I do have a backup, you know, sort of strategy around blobs. For example, uh, you can use AZ Copy. That's a good tool that is just sort of brute force. You do it. That would be the same um, Azure. I worked or with no Robin Shehan right? on that. Another right? MVP. Uh, right? Sorry.
0: That would be the same Azure or no Azure. You'd still need to implement it some the sort of backup It is the same Azure plan. or no Azure, exactly. Yeah. But
2: I think that what people forget is. Either people are scared. Oh, I'm putting it in the cloud. Uh, you know what? That makes me nervous. I'd rather have it on the file system. You still need to back up. Or it's the opposite. Oh, it's in the cloud. It's triple replicated. I'm not going to bother. Yeah. That's and that's good point. not going to work either. You always have to have a backup strategy. And even for large content like blobs, right? It, it, and and you can do it asynchronously now, which yeah. is nice for a long time now. Mm. So AZ Copy will do that in the background from one container to another. And you can have a cadence where you just keep doing that nightly or something like that and then maybe over a week or two you start deleting older ones and just keep like a, a point in time let's say you, you know
1: child parent yeah. grandparent rotation yeah. so I've got like a copy of everything for the past week and then I've got one copy a week for a month right and I've got exactly. one and then I've got one month for a quarter right and an annual
2: I knew you'd have a name for that
1: yeah it's a, it's a pattern for right. backup strategies but it's right. it's exactly you know you, you hit it with a you introduce a corruption and it's subtle. Right, the guy doesn't find it until he does a reconciliation six weeks later. Right. And then goes, oh my God, you've mangled all my data. Right. The fact that you have a backup that's two months old. You yeah. don't have one that's the day before it did the corruption, but it's two months old. There's one right. that's three months old. You have something to go back to.
2: I agree. Yeah, so you do that. And then for for data, it's the same thing. You, but they've got great tools for that. I prefer using an automated tool for both of those, actually. Um, so, uh, Redgate has something that you can do a blob sync. And that will just do it every night for you. Um, you can set it up against the containers you want to do that for. And then it'll do the rotation. Right. And then uh, there are other types of, and they also have a database backup uh, that you can use for SQL, like My MySQL. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be SQL DB. Sure. So, you know, I but always have the backup. I trust it. I just still have to have the backup. And, and
1: just to point back to you, could when you say trust, is in don't lose my data or it gets hacked? Yeah. Okay. So don't lose my data
2: is covered with the backups, obviously. And in the get hacked part, I mean, SQL DB actually is pretty strict around IP address uh, access and so on. So, you know, I can't even get into my own data until I go in and like approve my IP, which is pain when you need to get in fast and you've, you know, moved locations.
0: Just because you have your data in your data center doesn't mean it's any more. Susceptible or less susceptible than yeah. you know anyone else. So
2: right, it's probably more vulnerable on premise at your company. Yeah. Than I mean, if you were to do that, than it is in the cloud. Yeah,
1: I had that conversation with one of my customers who we were yeah. talking about putting it in the big data center that Microsoft has in in Ireland. After seeing uh, the FBI seize a small data center, mm. like it sees a small ISP where they literally showed up with forklifts and took the servers and mm. took everybody out. It's like, you know, you couldn't do that in Ireland. Those servers are in shipping containers, stacked on top of each other. It's like physically moving those things. It needs cranes. Like, it's not likely
0: to be able to pull that apart. Anybody else have a question? More questions? Yes, yeah, sir.
2: What's your process for deploying uh, like branches? Um, like do you write that in Visual Studio and publish,
0: or do you have for um, I guess
2: production and for future uh, uh, For deployment. Yeah.
0: Question is, what's your process for deploying branches? I think Studio I could right answer away. that
2: if I could borrow those glasses for a minute. <laughs>
0: Just kidding. Glass on.
2: <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it depends on the customer. So for Snapboard, we're a lean team, so we publish right from Visual Studio, doing that process I talked about before production branch ready to go with a published profile boom right and that's working just fine for us because it's not like we're deploying changes you know it's not the cadence of change is not all day you know 20 developers right it's 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 got some control around it so probably once a week or on demand with a feature um, and then some customers want continuous build and deployment. So then we usually consult with, you know, somebody like Mark Michaelis or, you know, one of the other guys that focus on that. So I'll bring in somebody for a customer that focuses on continuous build setup that knows how to do it the right way. And, and then that leaves the customer with a predictable, repeatable pattern. I don't think people, I don't want this to come out the wrong way. I don't want to say people shouldn't try to learn those things in house but that you should try to learn it from somebody that does nothing but that and bring it in-house. Because it is because a specialty. Because it's a specialty. You're and, right. you know, if you spend, you know, a month of one of your people's time and probably they'll still have to learn some of the mistakes that other person has done years of learning on, you know, uh, it just doesn't make sense economically for the business, you know. But always bring the knowledge in and have someone to own it unless you can continue to pay that consultant, on a retainer, which sometimes large companies will do that, right? So, just um, talking
1: about they only you only have so many apps. You only have to get this right so many times. Right. It's, it's like architecture. It's like normally in a in a big, in a, a normal typical enterprise, you're going to architect an app a year, maybe t- every other year. Bringing in an architect that does one every month means they look at it very differently. Right. I think building out a continuous deployment infrastructure, something just doesn't happen that often in most organizations. No. Mm.
2: No, I mean, once you have it, you just need to manage it. And I'm a big believer in, you know, having... Uh, An expert on hand that Mm. you trust, that you've worked with, that you can call, like, you know, for a couple hours, maybe every three, five, six, eight months when something comes up or goes wrong or you want to add on to the thing that you did before, um, rather than having team members trying to figure out how to be the number one expert at a thing. Mm. You know what I mean? It's just, it just makes good business sense in many areas of what you develop, you know?
0: Another question? Yeah. So, it
2: seems like you develop mostly C-sharp and using the pass rate. How do you deal with cloud uh,
0: elasticity You mean How you like, like
2: uh, autoscale? scale? Oh. Yeah. The question was around how to deal with elasticity in the PaaS environment as opposed to IaaS. And so it's actually configurable. Um, you can configure uh, parameters for autoscale, like when memory reaches this, autoscale up by one at a time or by two. Um, and so it will actually add VMs. So as long as you designed your app, which you should anyways to operate redundantly in the cloud, um, then it shouldn't matter if there's two machines or, you know, do you use four AutoScale or for ten. Snapboard? I don't need it for Snapboard right now, right. but that's because we have a controlled number of customers. We don't we haven't open to the public. We've right. only kept it to our corporate clients that have, mm. you know, come in. And so, most of the folks
1: I've worked with, with Azure mm-hmm. and, and AWS for that matter, just over provision. It's like, oh, we're coming into Saturday and we're going to get hit really hard. Right. We don't treat you don't use auto scale. You just light more instances because yeah. instances when they're not loaded down are pretty cheap. Mm-hmm. And just oh, okay, let's light ten more because it's going to cost us a thousand dollars for the day, and we'll, they'll be there already ready to run if we really need. But
2: that's them. a lot of money for the day. It
1: depends on the organization. On, on yeah. who,
2: depends on you know. Who this you was are. an
1: e-commerce organization where if these things really get used, it's going to be worth it. Right. But the time. Guessing that you were going to auto scale correctly, like figuring out those metrics, like what does an overloaded server look like? Right. It's a really, it's not, sometimes it's memory, sometimes it's CPU. Yep. Like what is it that you really know? Oh, we need more instances. Oh, you can shut those down. And so just taking out the got watch that stuff. Yeah. I mean, you yeah.
2: actually, with every single app, need to go and watch with Google Analytics, with your, you know, New Relics and or whatever else you're using to monitor usage. And and see what's happening while customers are actually in there, especially if you have enough customers to care. Yeah. And and watch what's happening when we had a medium instance. And, you know, I remember one of our recent customers, we over-provisioned to go live on purpose because, yep. you know, that was safe, right? Yeah. I mean, pay a little extra for the first month to go live when you've got 42,000 users hitting mm. the site yeah. and possibly 800 concurrent for most of the day. Yeah. yeah. I'm going gonna, gonna to over-provision and pay a little extra. And then you sort of start tapering it back and watching and looking at the numbers. But it's really interesting to watch those live events
1: But really knowing you know? this is the point where the experience gets poor and you want to add an instance to improve the experience.
2: Right, right. Every
1: app is different. Right. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to get that right.
0: And yep. so much easier to just go, throw lots.
2: Right. No. One
0: true. more question. We have time for one more. Yes.
2: Question on databases, it's like when you're in a cloud environment with past it's like there's a lot of uh, error messages that sometimes you get in,
0: sort of, in the premise world which tells you that like prices aren't being updated, applications running great, your websites running great, but there's a problem.
2: So when you don't have access to the log files, probably it comes. You mean for Azure DB? Yeah, I'm just trying that any type of um Product that you have at a website and you're
0: relying on a database. Sure. To write. Yeah. In a cloud I mean, a lot of times you do have
1: those things like there's a failure it's the What's it? It's, I think it's an awesome question. Yeah. You're, if you're used to running your own databases, you're used to a certain level of instrumentation. You have log files, yeah. and when you're running them in the cloud, you usually don't have those log files. Like, how do you actually instrument a, a database or any part of the app in a way? I'm sorry to paraphrase a bit here, uh, so that you have some confidence in
0: what's going on. You do have exception handling, however. You have
2: exception handling, which will occur when you're failing to write. I mean, the kinds of things that that I've seen you know, maybe recently that are fresh in my mind are connection issues. That's a really common problem yeah, when you have a lot of users. Uh, so that's not a Snapboard problem because we don't have a ton of concurrent users, but it's been other customers with large numbers of people and hitting say MySQL and not some of maybe, you know, uh, let me phrase this. So without a cluster, right, you can only have with MySQL and ClearDB so many connections, right? And so if you need more, then you have to go to a cluster. So that in itself is a decision that has to be made. Um, it's a little bit different with Azure DB. And I'm not at a, you know, uh, let's say a, a DBA, right? So I don't focus 100% in this area, so I'll disclaim it, my answer with that. But I would say I'm going to know when something goes wrong because of connections, timing out, and that's simply something that you can see as metrics, you know, even just in your app when you get the errors. The exceptions will show you that. It'll talk about the pool and, and not being able to get get something or acquire uh, an item from the pool and so on. Um, You're going to fail when you try to write, when you try to read, and you're going to see a lot of those exceptions. So if you're using New Relic, you'll see a ton of this type of exception. Oh, my goodness, we have a problem, right? But over a period of
1: a few seconds.
2: Really fast, exactly, because everybody's using the same database. So it's going to be obvious really fast. And so that's like got to fix it. Otherwise, we're down completely um that can happen with login even right i mean i've seen that happen mm-hmm. when when i've seen clustering issues like where you know nobody can log in either because that's a database too mm. um so and, and it's it's you know the user doesn't know what's going on they just know i can't log in right. we know what's going on because we're seeing the exceptions so it really does come down to monitoring which we haven't really talked a lot about here but that's really probably the most important thing is having data that you can monitor, right? Make sure that you're logging exceptions throughout your app. Uh, I like to tell people to use a central library like a diagnostics helper or log helper or something so that inside that Yeah. And, and actually for database, for sure, retry queue. Yeah. yeah absolutely. On,
0: in the cloud, you have to. But because, carefully. Yeah. Cause
2: even that can kill you if you're doing too many retries That's and right. there's actually a real problem. So there's, there's sort of a, there's a patterns and practices uh, library for that against SQL. And for MySQL, there's not really anything that matches exactly. So it depends which one you're using database wise. So, right. but monitoring, logging, having access to that. Somebody has to watch those every day. And go through the history of errors and warnings, but particularly errors. Um, and really you know, what you want is new relics, seeing there's been a lot of errors in a short amount of time, send an email to somebody and admin something.
0: Folks, that's about all the time we have. Time for that's our show, big hand for Michelle Rubustamante, please. And we'll see you next time on.net rocks.